Hello everyone, it's October 16th, 2018. This week we gotta talk about that Soyuz abort. What happened and do you think it might happen again? Also, Hubble has been hobbled and we got a data relay all about launch tower umbilicals. No one ever talks about them, this might be a first, and liftoff. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 180 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. All right, so... We have a good long episode ahead here, so we're. I hope that all of you listeners out there are on a nice long drive, <laughs> or that you're just willing to listen to it in segments over the course of the next couple of days, because um, you can totally do that. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, are we doing a show? Because I thought nothing really happened notable this week. Um, are we just gonna <laughs> gonna pack it in? It's just funny how when it rains it pours, as they say. Yeah, we have a couple things to talk about. One big thing, I suppose, but really two big things, and uh, and then we have a nice long segment. Okay, so uh, I've got a nice short this week in spaceflight history, uh, which worked out really well. Our winners this week are Ian Soddy, Patrick McGuire, Mike Carper, which really sounds like the beginning of a dirty pun, right? Pat, uh, Mike mm-hmm. Carper. It, it really sounds like a name that, that Bart Simpson would give to Mo at the bar and try to get <laughs> him to say something stupid. Um, yeah, I think it yeah. Car- Carper damn near killed her or something. I don't know. <laughs> Mike <laughs> Carper, please. <laughs> Uh, all right, Manuel Salazar and Alexander M., who I th- believe is a first guest. Welcome, Alexander. Uh, the clue was uh, my my cat hungrily meowing for breakfast. All right, so this week in spaceflight history is October eighteenth, nineteen sixty three. It was the first flight of a cat in space. The first cat in space was supposed to be a little guy named Felix, but he literally ran away uh, before the launch. So uh, they had another cat. This was actually. Um, Canesse, even back in 1963, it was uh, called Canesse, uh, the the French space agency. Um, and so they had a number of cats ready to go, um, and they were taking um, ECG readings, I believe, from all of them. It's actually kind of cute. They uh, uh, glued a connector to the top of their head so that they could, like, plug their cats into the computer. Um, <laughs> and it, it looks it looks really terrifying, but it's it's not... You know, it's it's not like they actually put a chip in the in the darn cat's brain. So they grabbed the next cat in line, who was Felicette, and uh, she went to space. She was the first cat to go to space, and I think I think we might have put an, one other cat into space, but uh, it's it's pretty much Felicette and nobody else. Um, so you know, when you are putting animals into space, you generally want them in you know nice enclosed areas so in this case they while they're experimenting on these cats they have them in like the only way i can describe it is like a little sled so it's a small box with a face hole and so they you know their head is out of the hole and everything else is inside Um, so they they stuck her in her little sled they took a bunch of uh, ecg readings and then sent her up 130 miles Uh, they launched out of french algeria um, so, you know, nice big desert. They they flew her up 130 miles and she came back down. I think it's, you know, like a 15 minute flight or something like that. And, you know, then they took ECG readings after she landed. The idea was to try to figure out how weightlessness affects uh, the brains of living animals. Chubby in the chat says that they dissected her a few months later, um, which is kind of expected, but also kind of sad. Uh, Anyway, um, so she flew on a Veronique AG-1, um, which is a V2 derivative. Interestingly enough, it appears to have detachable aerodynamic fins. So at the base of the vehicle, it's got four very long, they almost look like control surfaces, um, but they're fins that stick out perpendicular to the vehicle. They're not, you know, sloped upwards. And 
right after launch, two of them actually detach and fall away from the vehicle. I don't know if they do them in pairs. When I was looking at launch footage, you could only see one pair separate. But yeah, kind of kind of a weird rocket. It didn't do much, um, but yeah, it's you know a V2 derivative, which is is kind of cool. All right, next week I've got a clue for you. It's uh, next week in 2004. The clue is looking down the barrel. Looking down the barrel. I like this clue just because uh, I don't have to insert any kind of weird audio. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and if you think you know what that's in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Soyuz MS-10 fails during second stage flight. So yeah. this is crazy. And I found out about it pretty early in the morning because, uh, you know, it just showed up on my phone. And uh, the first thing that we all wanted to know is, like, is the crew okay? Like, that was, like, literally the first thing I was trying to find out before I mm-hmm. went, you know, like, any further, um, which, of course, they are fine. And then there was just a lot of, there was just a lot of speculation and then some conclusions coming down as to exactly what happened. And I think at this point, it's pretty well known exactly what happened, not exactly why, but, you know, what happened? I think we know this now, right? Well, we'll, we'll talk about certainty a little bit. But, yeah, we're, mm-hmm. we've got a, a pretty darn good idea. So on board were just two astronauts, Nick Haig, uh, an American, and Alexei Ovchinin. Um, and, uh, you know, Nick Haig was only recently selected as an astronaut. But Alexei has already been to ISS once. Mike Haig actually has not been to space yet. Almost. But, yes, yeah, so this has got to be really disappointing <laughs> for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing is they did not get up to the Kármán line. I saw some reports, more recent ones, that said that they did. Yeah, they're, they're probably wrong because um, okay. NASA says that they didn't. But, you know, NASA could be wrong because they, they gave a press conference the day of so kind of their their worst hmm. position to be in. So yeah, so so what happened? First off, um, on the the live stream, things obviously went a little weird. But if you don't speak Russian, you didn't really know that anything had happened, um, because the English calls uh, both from the Russian side and from NASA both they follow a script, right? They're they're not looking at a screen and going, oh, this has happened. Oh, this has happened. They mm-hmm. they know the sequence that these things should take place in, and so they have all of their calls scripted out. And the um, computer renders are also um, pre-scripted. Um, I don't know if it's a video that they're playing. Um, I I think uh, it depends on which agency you're watching. Sometimes they're actually uh, displaying live data that's you know, being incorporated into this render, but you know, the, the earth below and the general path of the vehicles taking up, it's, it's all prescripted. So when you see these things, it's easy to believe that you are watching Kerbal Space Program and that we just happen to have, you know, really nice cameras for the external views on the ground and really horrible cameras for the external views, uh, up in the air. Uh, but that's not the case. So I just, I want to get that out of the way because I think it's something that we forget too often, but we know that the first stage did not separate from the second stage correctly. And the Russians talk about this in kind of a weird way. We would call the first stage the core and then the boosters on the outside boosters. But they call the boosters on the outside the first stage and the core the second stage. 
uh, for three total stages instead of two stages with strap-on boosters. The first stage uh, has got these beautiful conical boosters on the side, and they are supposed to separate cleanly. <laughs> Obviously, one of them didn't. And in fact, Roscosmos told TASS, the uh, Russian news agency, they said the lower part of the first stage disintegrated. There's This is exactly one time I've seen this quote, um, so I don't know if this was, you know, off the cuff or misinterpreted, but they said the lower part of the first stage disintegrated. We also happen to know which booster was the problem. Uh, it was the D booster. Of course, there's A, B, C, and D. Uh, so D booster didn't separate properly. So before we talk about why it didn't separate, let's talk about the intended sequence here. So you're flying uh, up into the sky with five sets of engines firing. A lot of boosters will... Uh, you know, fire explosive bolts or whatever. They'll uh, throttle down the boosters, fire explosive bolts, and let the boosters f fall away from the vehicle. But this vehicle was designed uh, by Korolev, and he came up with a really interesting idea. Instead of having explosive bolts at the top and the bottom of the booster, they only have one set of explosive bolts, and they're at the bottom of the booster. So the top or the forward end of the booster has got a ball and socket joint and then the, the lower end is actually severable so what you do is when you're ready to stage you blow the aft struts and they separate um, because uh, the booster is connected on its side to the core to the second stage uh, the thrust is asymmetric um, when you don't have, well, it's asymmetric all the time, but now all of a sudden the booster can torque out. And so they actually move in such a way that the forward end stays in contact with the first stage or with the second stage and the, the bottom of the booster actually folds outward uh, before any other movement happens. The, the bottom separates and not the top. So once you've got that, then you can go ahead and shut off the boosters. Um, they've, their engines have, uh, have torqued you out. And then you can separate the, the top anchor point, the top mounting point. And the way you do that is instead of having um, solid rocket engines, which is what I think most rockets would do these days, uh, instead, Korolev decided, hey, we have a cold gas tank sitting right here. Let's build a cold gas thruster. So they open these propulsive vents uh, at the top of the booster, and they push themselves away from the center, the center core, using oxygen, which is insane, uh, but very, very clever. So then you have force pushing outward at the top, and then they can fall away like normal boosters. So if you watch footage of Soyuz launches at separation, you get this big cloud of white smoke up at the top of the boosters. And it's easy to imagine that that is solid rocket exhaust. But in fact, it's liquid oxygen precipitating the moisture out of the air. So it's actually a, a water cloud that you're seeing there. Um, so then, you know, the, the top of the boosters um, separate from uh, the center core and they go rotating in that very classic Korolev cross as they fall outwards and then rotate inwards so that all the tops are pointing together and they rotate back outwards. And it, it creates, nominally, it creates a very beautiful show where you have the second stage and the rest of the vehicle powering itself off to orbit and these flat, these four flashing boosters, uh, flashing as they rotate in the sun and, and catch the sunlight. 
Um, and it's called the Korolev cross. So that's the ideal. Something went wrong. And the chat is all saying, yeah, it's, uh, we'll, we'll get updates. We'll get updates. Well, we have a pretty, a pretty good guess. We're going to see if this is actually the case. Um, and the big problem here is that getting primary data out of these boosters is going to be difficult because they're not recovered. Uh, they smash into the ground very quickly. And then once they've hit the ground, they are swarmed by local people who are interested in salvaging the steel. So your evidence tends to run away very quickly. So uh, the speculation right now, and this is, this is where we get into speculation, is that the D-booster locks vent valve didn't open properly, which you can begin to see the cascade of bad things that happen uh, as, as we move down. Uh, so it, the bottom of the booster flips outward and then the top of the booster doesn't move. So now instead of having the boosters rotating with their tops moving away from, from the center core, because they, they rotate around their center of mass, which is down by the, the rocket engines. Now it's actually falling inward towards the second core, which means that at best it can slide down the side it can disengage from that ball joint and slide down the side of the second stage. At worst, though, it doesn't separate from that ball valve properly. You still have residual thrust from the booster engines, and you actually apply lateral thrust pretty close to the center of mass of this huge vehicle, but it's still asymmetric thrust that can begin to torque the second, third, and Soyuz uh, capsule rotationally in the air, increasing their angle of attack. And then, of course, uh, it gets even worse because apparently as it finally detaches from that uh, ball joint, slides down the side, impacts the second stage, and tears the, uh, tears the tank open, you know, potentially there was no residual thrust causing an issue, and, the, you know, there's just this impact. But I, I got to say, I, I think it probably... Uh, added some some asymmetric thrust. I thought that by the time that they actually detached, there was no more thrust. I mean, isn't that something that they would be sure of? They've throttled down, but there's always residual thrust, like rockets tail off. Um, I don't know. I don't know what that I don't know what that curve looks like, but I mean, they don't shut down immediately. Yeah, James is showing uh, in the discord uh, a little gif. And as yeah. they detach and the Korolev cross is there, you see that they're still there's still some thrust. Yeah, it, it's a little deceiving because a, a lot of that orange flame is impingement from the second stage engines. But I, I think I think that they're they're still uh, they're certainly dumping propellant out. I don't know if they've been extinguished and are actually not providing thrust. But either way, uh, yeah, great great point, David. They you know it might not have it might have just been an impact and not also adding uh, lateral thrust. But either way, in the video from the ground. It's pretty apparent, and you know this is open interpretation. You know none of us are experts here, but it looks pretty clear that the second, the second stage and the third stage are rotating, uh, increasing their angle of attack. And to me, it looks like they're maybe rotating up to forty-five degrees or more. It's pretty bad. That core rocket really got torqued sideways. Yeah. So at that point they terminated the flight. What's interesting is even at that point, they 
they didn't have the launch escape tower. They actually jettisoned that before booster separation. And so it's it's really interesting that the primary abort isn't even necessary at this point. So the reason that they have that tower is because um, when you're lifting off from the ground, you've got all five rocket engines firing at once, and you've got a, a heck of a lot of thrust. And so you really need a lot of oomph to get away from it. Um, counterintuitively, as the rocket empties, you actually, I think they uh, must throttle down the, the rockets or something um, because the thrust actually decreases to the point where you don't need that tower. It's also just because you don't have the boosters, but of course you actually do have them in this case, which is an interesting thing. But I think that it used to be, from what I understand, they actually used to jettison the tower a little bit later, but um, since like Soyuz yeah. TM, they actually do it sooner because they just want to save on mass. But then, you know, you run into problems like this, but actually it wasn't a problem because they could still abort. <laughs> exactly. So. Yeah. So the, the, sh the shroud or the fairing still has uh, its own rockets uh, built in. So they have a very uh, long uh, abort uh, envelope, right? They, they can abort very, very late in this flight, not all the way up to orbit, because uh, obviously you do uh, ditch those fairings at some point, but definitely through uh, booster sep, you're, you're good to go. Um, so basically they detach the service module from the crew module, and then there's a shear line in the middle of that fairing, and so the top half of the fairing goes flying off and saves the crew. Uh, unfortunately, the, the crew had to do a ballistic re-entry. They were you know, on a very shallow re-entry path, and so ballistic re-entries are... are no fun, but they landed and they happened to land right next to the staging area for nominal capsule recovery. So the search and rescue folks were there. Uh, I think within 20 or 40 minutes, they were they were there at the capsule and they were back in Baikonur within three hours of launch. So wow. that, that works out pretty cool. Yeah. James Sutherland points out that the uh, and Dennis and I were talking about this before the show, that boost protective cover. That's an Apollo term. I don't know what they call it, uh, but the fairing actually has uh, grid fins as well to help keep it pointed in the right direction. Yeah. Anderson says uh, way more G's than can be categorized as fun. That's that's the truth. <laughs> I mean, even before they start experiencing reentry trees, um, from the video, you can see them jerking around inside the the Soyuz laterally. I mean, there there's a pretty good lateral moment. Um, the video is kind of deceptive because the transmission isn't fantastic and it starts to break up and it starts repeating the same frames over and over. So it looks like they're shaking back and forth laterally, but I think it's probably one movement sideways. But yeah, save the crew. Super fantastic. So interestingly enough, this is the second second time in, in human spaceflight history that um, we've actually had a successful in-flight abort. And it's interesting that our systems work. Um, and, and, you know, for me, this this does build trust in, in Soyuz, but it's kind of crazy that, you know, we're this far into spaceflight and we're still having to do this kind of thing. Um, the, the other abort was uh, back in 1975. The the other board was back in 1975. Thank you, David. And it it was Soyuz 18A or Soyuz 18-1, depending. And uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. But basically, that was much much higher in the atmosphere. They didn't have uh, the launch abort system, um, so the Soyuz actually had to do its own abort separation. And they had they had a really tough uh, reentry and a really tough landing. Uh, that they they almost died. They almost went off a cliff. So with crew safe. Let's talk about what this means uh, for Soyuz. Back in January, we had um, a completely different type of failure, but Progress MSO4 
uh, failed. That was a third stage failure. Also worth noting that that's a Soyuz U. The differences between the different um, Soyuz variants aren't that big. They're mostly electrical. Sometimes they will tweak an engine. And, you know, there there have been other Soyuz failures in the past, but they've all been different components. I was actually having this conversation with somebody on Twitter. Um, they were saying, okay, at what point are we justified in moving from the assumption that these are all individual issues that can be solved to the thought that these are symptoms of a systemic issue? Does this begin to indicate that the Russian space complex is not paying as much attention to quality control as they should be. It's really tough. Dan in the chat says that he thinks that we passed that point uh, long ago. Um, a lot of people are saying no. That, that's you know not something that we've that we've seen. It's, it's hard to say in the same way that it's hard to say like if a hurricane is the result of global warming. You know, it's <laughs> part of a larger trend, but you can't say it's this one thing. But I mean, there is a larger trend. Well, and that the thing is that like yes, there have been a decent number of failures. Um, I I haven't actually looked at the numbers, so I'm not sure if it's actually accelerating. Um, but there have been a huge number of successes too, right? The launch volume is is going up. So yeah, I. I don't know. I mean, in a political context, I'm not sure what this means. Um, but I do know that NASA and a lot of space professionals are very upbeat. They're saying that this this demonstrates the trustworthiness of, of Soyuz when you have you know, an issue, the launch abort system works and that kind of thing. But the, the people, I, I don't want to say the amateurs, but like the, the populace is really throwing Soyuz out and really saying we don't trust uh, the Russian space complex. Yeah, hu humans are risk averse. I, I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. I've said this many times, but I think that there are much larger problems. I mean, this is just a symptom of, you know, like other things going on in Russia. And with all the competition coming from overseas for them, I mean, I don't know how they're going to fare. I mean, I sometimes wonder if they're even going to be capable of putting any anything into space in, say, 20 years. Uh, and I know that that's an extreme point of view, but what's to keep the industry going for them? Because their customers are going to go elsewhere. They just don't seem to be, you know, investing like anything into their own space program. That's just the vibe that I get. Well, I, I know that uh, one international partner has pulled out from sending a, an astronaut to ISS be, because of this. I, I think that's probably a huge overreaction, at least until we get, you know, the initial results of the investigation back. Like, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe that's, a, that's a bit early. Uh, but also, Arian Space uh, has... I believe they're delaying a launch. I'm not 100% sure, but they're, you know, kind of waiting with bated breath as well to see what's going on because Ariane Space flies um, the Soyuz ST. This was, th this failure was in a Soyuz FG. Um, the difference between the two is, is very small, actually. The ST has um, a slight engine modification to make it fly better in human environments. Uh, it has larger payload fairings. Um, it also has upgraded telemetry. Notice that none of those have anything to do with separating the first stages. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Arian Space is like, well, hang on, like, how is this going to affect us? And, and so, yeah, Pete, I mean, th this is sending ripples through the spaceflight industry, but uh, I think at this point, you know, it's it should just be, hang on, let's see what's going on. Um, not throwing the, the baby out just yet. I'd say that that's a reasonable thing to do, for sure. Maybe also because we, uh, well, we don't have too much of a choice as, as far as putting people into space goes, and I guess we can talk about that next, right? Because <laughs> yeah. uh, what happens from this point forward? That's the big if. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right, right. So, so first, let's talk about. I want to kind of roll back just a little bit and talk about how this is affecting other launches. So, one of the things that I've heard over and over and over in the echo chamber that is Twitter is people saying we need to get commercial crew up and running. We need to get commercial crew up and running. Let's save the ISS with commercial crew. I've actually got a, a great quote. So, so this quote comes from Patricia Sanders, who's the chair of the Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel, and she says uh, current projected schedules for crew she started by saying hey nothing unsafe has happened yet in commercial crew but she says current projected schedules for uncrewed and crewed flight tests for both providers that's spacex and boeing uh, have considerable risk and do not appear achievable so the the point here is commercial crew is already stressed out right it it's it hasn't made any unsafe decisions, but we really, really, really don't want to encourage them to begin to make those unsafe decisions. So I saw a couple of kind of interesting thought experiments, you know, people talking about, okay, at what point are we willing to put more risk into commercial crew so that we can avoid the risk of flying on Soyuz? I think the answer is pretty clearly at no point. Um, We want the safest ride, And we would rather wait and have other negative uh, consequences than to push through a high risk situation just to avoid a slightly higher risk situation somewhere else. And there are still doubts that obviously the commercial crew is not going to be ready even when they say that it will be. I mean, it's it's probably going to get pushed back even further. There are these issues that haven't been met for commercial crew. And I'm guessing that, and I don't remember what they all are. I think some of them involve like parachute tests. And yeah, that's that that sounds pretty risky. Like I would rather stick with Soyuz. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't want to put them on those things just yet. Yeah. Um, okay. Consequences. What happens in the real world, right? We've, we've talked a lot about politics and policy. What happens in the real world? Well, obviously this was a Soyuz launch. It's going to ISS. There are three people on ISS right now. They have one Soyuz and that Soyuz has an expiration date. Basically, we've talked about this on the show before. Um, but Soyuz's have, uh, hydrogen peroxide, um, for their attitude control system, their RCS system. And that hydrogen peroxide decomposes at a known rate. At a certain point, you lose enough fuel to be able to come home safely. Uh, nominally, they have 200 days on station, which is why you fly up in one Soyuz and come down on another one. They, they overlap, uh, so that you can have missions that are longer than 200 days. The one that's up there now is approaching its 200 day limit in December. Um, I've heard two different numbers on this. Obviously, it was scheduled to come home in December. We know that. The amount of wiggle room that's there, written sources I've seen say that it gets them to the end of December if they use up that wiggle room. NASA's press conference directly after the abort, they said that they have until January. So maybe they've got even more wiggle room that they're willing to squeeze out of this thing. But at, at best, we have to decrew ISS in January, if we don't send anybody else up, um, and there were going to be two additional Soyuz Soyuz missions before that happened, right? There was going to be this one, and then MS-11 was scheduled for December 20th. But if we don't get anybody up there before January at best, we're going to have to decrew ISS. And and let's be clear, the the expiration date of that that hydrogen peroxide bottle is the limiting factor here, not the consumables. They have more than enough consumables on ISS thanks to HTV. I mean, they always have a big buffer, but HTV really, really loaded up the pantry. So if we're not able to fly anybody by January, it'll be the first time since the 2nd of November 2000 
that we have not had humans in space. It's almost 18 years that we've had humans in space constantly. For me, this is a big issue. Um, it's not big enough to risk life, but having humans in space consistently is such a psychological importance to me. It seems to be one of the things that we're doing right when it comes to space. Yeah. And from from like a science aspect, no, we don't need to have people continuously in space. Like that's not adding much benefit um, as opposed to having occasional gaps. But yeah, psychologically, this is very emotional for me. If we have to decrew ISS, it's fine. Okay. It, things are going to be okay. They already have uh, button-up procedures where they say, okay, shut this down, turn this on, set this switch. They do everything that they need to do inside ISS to get it ready for an uncrewed period. They can do it. It's not a problem. Um, people were asking in the press conference, how long can you run ISS without people? And they said, for our purposes, indefinitely. It's not a problem. That That's, that's not what we're worried about. But the truth is, is that that's not going to always be the case because something will inevitably go wrong because things have yes. gone wrong. Right, right. And, and then you need someone to fix it. Right. But on the timescales that we're talking about, it's okay. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> but you never know. Yeah, I mean, things things can always go wrong, but things could go wrong with people up there as well. But I'm saying that if that happens, you have people up there to fix it because there's some things that can't be automated. Things like, you know, having to repair a solar array. And if something goes wrong with that, there could be like an ammonia leak, which uh, I had read that that's one possibility. And that is pretty critical. So if that can't be fixed, then the whole thing starts to spin out of control or whatever. I mean, these are some pretty extreme scenarios, but it's mm -hmm. more than possible. It's just like given, you know, how often it needs to be fixed by a person. It just seems rather dangerous to keep it up there for, say, a whole year without a person. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, nobody wants to keep it up risk. there. Yeah. Right. No, nobody wants to have it decrewed for longer than necessary. But from getting people back up there from that point of view, it's okay. Uh, so there are two alternatives. The first one's pretty cool. It's sending an empty Soyuz up to station. So if you're not confident enough to put people in a Soyuz, you should still be confident enough to put no people on a Soyuz. So you mm -hmm. could send up an empty Soyuz module that can dock with ISS autonomously or, you know, remote controlled. Either one is totally doable. Get a fresh Soyuz up there. You can return the expired Soyuz empty. And now you have another 200 days to solve this problem. And, well, and, and also uh, just to add to that, uh, I believe that that was something that they were planning on trying out anyway. I'm not sure which mission, but that was something that was on the table. And it might be because Russia is sending up fewer people these days. And so maybe that might have to happen anyway. Um, so that was something that they had in the works anyway. But yeah, so and then uh, uh, the other option is to actually just have them uh, return in the Soyuz with no fuel, no hydrogen peroxide, because apparently this is possible, at least according to Scott Manley, because I watched his video and I do trust him most of the time. <laughs> He'd said that this can be done. I don't know how realistic it is because um, it would have to be a fully ballistic reentry. And so you're going to be pulling some horrible G's. You're just going to be plunging into the atmosphere. You have no aerodynamic control at all. But that's not to say that, you know, I, I mean, you could still come back, but it does not seem ideal. So I, I think that would be a last resort, frankly. Yeah, if they if they asked me to do it, I'd be like, uh, no, I'm coming home early. You don't want to come home as a pancake because, I mean, how can you survive 21 Gs? I mean, I'm sure it's just for a very short span of time, like maybe only seconds, but still, that's not a lot. Pleasant. And that seems, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. That seems more dangerous than just risking a fresh Soyuz flight. So uh, we do actually need to get another Soyuz up there. Um, commercial crew right now, the first uh, mission to ISS is no earlier than April. 
And that's going to fall back. That's going to continue to slip. There's no way that we're actually going to fly either vehicle in April. I, I don't think it's it's very likely to happen. So even if uh, we you know get this this investigation back, by the way, the investigation says that they're going to get preliminary answers back by the 20th. It's currently the 14th on Sunday. So they're saying that they're going to have conclusions or initial conclusions before our next episode, which is like crazy. We'll, we'll see how valuable that data ends up being, but let's say, you know, we get lucky. We find out exactly what happened. It's not a manufacturing issue. It's not a sabotage issue. It's something that's totally explainable. Turns out it, you know, what happened, uh, eventually we're able to fix it we restore perfect confidence in ISS. If that happens, um, we're still going to have consequences from this. We have two EVAs um, that are in trouble. The EVA that was going to go take a look at the outside of that Soyuz um, that's potentially coming home. This this is the one with the leak, right? Um, so we, they were going to do an EVA to go take a look at that on the outside. That's been canceled. And this is when you really wish that they could put uh, a spheres outside, right? <laughs> Have it have it go squirt around and go take a look. Haig was scheduled to take part in an EVA to go install Ida 3, the international docking adapter. That has now totally been thrown out of whack. Who knows when we're going to be able to do that EVA? And uh, additionally, uh, MS-11, like I said, it was scheduled for December 20th. That's now going to get pushed back as well. Even if they you know, immediately say everything's okay, I've got a, a pretty strong feeling that MS-11 is not going to fly on schedule anymore. So even the best case scenario, everything's getting pushed back. We're going to have uh, a lot of things bumping up against each other. So let's take a quick poll. Uh, what do you guys think the chances of ISS being decrewed are? I'm putting it at 50-50. Uh, Dan in the chat says 30%. Yeah, I'm going to say say it's, it's more like 30% or 20% or something. I, I don't think it's that likely that it's a... 50-50 thing. I'll go out there. I'm going to say it's going to happen. <laughs> and you'll just cover the spread. <laughs> well, more like, yeah, well, yeah I'm, I'm picking more of a, I'm making this in terms of a bet. Yeah. I'll, as far as a percentage go, I'll say uh, 51%. 51. I think it's going to I happen. guess the question should rather be, do you think it will or will not happen? And then we could, you know, which I guess I'm going to say, I think that it will not. You think that it will. And Ben, you're in the middle. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I would, you know, bet how I would bet one way or the other, but. I mean, percentage-wise, I'm I'm saying 50. Our chat is way more optimistic. Anderson Denova, uh, who you'll hear more from later, uh, says 10%. James Sutherland says 10%. <laughs> Us uh, armchair idiots here, we're we're kind of <laughs> scattered. Um, I, I wish that we could um, have somebody from the industry pin down their expectations, but you know that that's not going to happen. I just think it's it's such a bold move to make. You know that they don't want to, that NASA and, you know, Ross Cosmos will figure out something before they let that happen. I mean, mm -hmm. there's got to be one solution, and if they can find it, they will do it. Sending up the empty Soyuz does seem like the best. I don't really see a really big yeah. downside to that. Yeah. Yeah, I, and that would be really cool anyway, especially if they have footage from the inside of the vehicle on the, on the mm -hmm. you know, webcast. That'd be pretty cool. Okay, I, I think we've talked about Soyuz enough. Um, Dennis, you've got a really cool... Uh, well, geez, cool. That, that, <laughs> yeah, this is yeah, but this is right in your ballpark here. So this is something that's near and dear to your heart, as well as everyone, I guess. So yeah, I was gonna say I've actually used, I've gotten time with both of these 
telescopes. Oh, wow. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, so Hubble uh, Space Telescope is now in safe mode. After 28 years up there, uh, just to give you a kind of heads up of how old this spacecraft is, it is still something that is very important for astronomers. Like getting Hubble time is such a big deal because being above the atmosphere, you get sharper, clearer images than you can really do from the ground unless you do something called adaptive optics which tries to remove the turbulence in the air by flexing the mirrors rapidly but mm -hmm. that can be tricky in its own way and that usually has a very tiny field of view when you do get that working so hubble is sort of like still the gold standard for getting visual images as well as doing some uh, spectroscopy it's really good with that too so unfortunately uh on friday october 5th uh nasa engineers put Hubble into safe mode after a gyroscope failed. And so I saw, right, the reaction was that this is, you know, disastrous. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a pain in the ass. Sorry, it's a pain in the butt because after all, you know, astronomers are, you know, applying for telescope time relentlessly. Uh, we just use this telescope as much as we possibly can. And so any delay is going to basically probably have a few PhDs get delayed a couple of years um, unfortunately, yeah. but, uh, so in safe mode, what it means is that, you know, critical hardware is swapped to backup units, uh, the solar panels, uh, the, the space telescopes rotated. So the solar panels can maximize the light that they receive. Uh, the thing is though, this gyroscope's failure was somewhat, well, not somewhat, it was basically anticipated. This didn't come out of the blue. So it had, you know, this is around the expected lifetime when they thought that this gyroscope would fail and it had been showing the kind of end of life behavior, uh, you would expect to see, uh, for the last year or so. And so to give kind of an overview, there's, uh, six gyros on Hubble right now. All right. And these are important for pointing. And so they were installed in a 2009 servicing mission. And so three of them have gone as expected. They don't last forever. And so this one, I guess, is the third one to have gone. Wait, no, this was the fourth one to have gone. So they were down to three. Sorry, they were down to two functioning gyroscopes. And they turned on a backup, right? Usually you have three, at least three gyroscopes to use. And so they had a backup one that they turned on. But unfortunately, it's giving bogus uh, rotation rates. So uh, the way they were describing it is that, you know, and these are wrong by orders of magnitude. Uh, so even though it's this gyroscope's properly tracking Hubble's movements, it's not reporting the correct uh, rotation rates. So they can actually, you know, steer Hubble around, you know, have it aim broadly at whatever star galaxy you're interested in. But during an exposure, you need to have, you know, as accurate a pointing as possible. So that way you don't end up smearing the light out over your CCD. And as a result, they can't do that right now, at least with that third backup gyro. So the idea now, from what I understand, is that they have already been testing and experimenting with a single gyro mode which might be what they end up having to do. And with this single gyro, it basically will have the same imaging and spectroscopic performance, but you'd get a little less sky coverage at any particular time. And so it might be a pain in the butt for looking at solar system objects, which tend to be moving a lot quicker through the sky. And so that is my guess, right? We're talking about betting and putting percentages on things. My guess is that we're going to have a single gyro uh, Hubble for, you know, the rest of its life, uh, which can, you know, have it last for quite a while into the 2020s, uh, where it should overlap with JWST. And so that's kind of what's going on with Hubble right now. And ridiculously enough, <laughs> uh, just what, days later? Uh, yeah, five days later, <laughs> Chandra, which is a one of the 
two really big x-ray telescopes that are up there. And of the two, it's the one that has the high uh, precision and very high sensitivity. And so this was, um, you know, an x-ray telescope launched in 1999, uh, named after a famous uh, physicist, uh, Subramanian Chandrasekhar, who was a big person when it came to uh, studying black holes initially back uh, in the 20th century. And so this thing is, I have a little note here that I've actually uh, made detections with this telescope. This telescope is so sensitive that you can actually secure detections with as few as three photons. Wow. You can tell that there's something there versus not there. <laughs> it has a ridiculously low background rate. Wow. And so, yeah, in this case, uh, it, it triggered safe mode uh, automatically. Um, it has ways to do that. And it happened, ironically enough, during NASA's quarterly review meeting. So all the people afterwards, I'm sure, scrambled to their uh, computers. And uh, similarly, right, it's, you know, uh, basically uh, just chilling there right now. Uh, in this case, the cause is under investigation, but there was one quote from NASA that mentioned the word gyroscope as a possibility for this failure. And so that would be remarkably bad timing. But uh, I believe at the beginning of the show, right, Ben, you said uh, randomness comes in clumps or whatever. Yeah, randomness is <laughs> And so... How about that, right? And so uh, the good news, though, is that uh, Grant Tremblay had uh, had tweeted that the issue's been characterized and they're working on a clear pathway to recovery. And so this is a really important X-ray telescope. There have been uh, proposals to have, you know, a next generation X-ray telescope up there, and it kind of keeps getting pushed further and further on the back burner uh, in no small uh, part due to James Webb eating and consuming more and more of the budget. But um, so it's very important to have Chandra back up and working, but it does seem optimistic here that, you know, it's just one of these things that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. It just seems the gyroscopes, they're kind of like the brake pads of, they're like brake pads in space or something. Like you have to change them <laughs> eventually, you know? Right, right. Um, the problem is you can't do that when something is in space. So Yeah, and Chandra's in a crazy, like, this highly eccentric orbit that takes it way, way far from the Earth. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I know it's got a very distant apogee. So that's uh, that's what's going on with our telescopes. And the one uh, article I saw was pretty awful. I mean, it was awful and like it just it broke my heart. It said something about like, you know, and now NASA has four things that aren't working right because this is bringing up uh, uh, what's called Opportunity and Hubble and Chandra. And it's just, you know, come on, you know, we need to kick us when we're down. So two things. First off, um, we need to stop using wheels and start using Emery Stagmer's uh, 3D... Spherical reaction. Yeah, three, three-dimensional yeah, reaction mass. Um, second, you said that um, Chandra is one of two X-ray telescopes. What's the other one? So, yeah, the two... There's technically X-ray telescopes that are attached to gamma-ray telescopes. Okay. But as far as X-ray workhorses, the other one's called XMM-Newton, and that's, a, that's an ESA one. And that one is not quite as sensitive as Chandra, but it's got a much larger collection area. And so Chandra is if you wanted to take, you know, a detailed image of an X-ray source, while XMM is if you wanted to basically collect as many photons as possible so you can maybe take a detailed X-ray spectra or something. Yeah, more of a survey kind of thing. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. This week we have a self-correction or a self-burn, a self-correction burn. <laughs> I don't know what to call it. Uh, from last week from Erin Cross, and she came across something that I think 
something that seemed a little bit odd to me, and I think she figured it out. So this is about, I guess we have to remind listeners exactly what we were talking about, because we're talking about like oscillations, things like that, with uh, the Saturn V injector plate. Yeah, so she said, uh, I believe I misinterpreted the paper that led me to understand that the Saturn V injector elements were vibrating individually. It referred to coupling between oscillations in the chamber and unsteady motions within the injector elements. And so she said, on looking at this again, I think it means that the propellants were oscillating within the elements rather than that the injection elements were moving relative to the injector plate. So yeah, there are these little injector elements that are like mounted on the plate. And you had said that, you know, you thought that such things could not actually be vibrating or oscillating because, you know, they're made out of, I don't know what, but some kind of like Inconel or something, I, I don't know, but um, they're pretty rigid. Not only rigid, but like they're, they don't have a, a long axis, right? Like you can flex, anything will flex and that's amplified over long axis, but they're so short and stubby. It seemed mm-hmm. weird that something stubby could, could oscillate like that. Yeah, so that was her own self-correction. And then it uh, looks like we have another thing. And uh, next up, I guess we need to talk about our data relay or how that's going. So what is the state of the relay? <laughs> right. So I've said this a, a couple of times. I kind of wanted to do three episodes just to, you know, kind of get some burn in, kind of uh, figure out what's going on. And this this week is the last of, of this pilot segment. And uh, we've gotten a lot of great feedback and uh, personally, I've just really, really, really enjoyed recording the segments and learning, and I, I like what comes at the end. So uh, I say the pilot's a success. What do you guys think? I think so, too. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it might need some some modifications, though, because, you know, there are yeah. little tweaks that have to be made, but that's, you know, inevitable. So Yeah, I've, I've made like a it. bunch of tweaks on the back end. On the front end, We I've got some goals listed, but... You know, there's some things that that we would like to to tweak, but yeah, I think we're doing good. So, first off, let me say I totally forgot when I was um, coming up with the data relay segment, I totally forgot that tomorrow did pretty much the same thing and called them space pods. <laughs> I don't I just don't. I, it occurred to me. I don't want anybody to think I'm trying to step on their toes. It's a good idea, which is why it uh, develops independently in multiple places. So, this is our call for contributors. We would love to have more contributors. Um, right now we have uh, the three that you will have heard from, plus uh, Richard Durden, who's kind of our community manager. He does some community stuff for us. He's working on one. Um, so we effectively, we have four contributors. Um, we would like to increase that number. We want to hear from more people. We want to hear more perspectives. And uh, I think we want to be able to do this regularly. I'm, I'm thinking twice a month. Because that's kind of what we were doing in the beginning. I'd like to be able to do these on a fairly regular basis. They take a lot of work. They're very intensive. Um, so having multiple authors working on different things at different times means that we can really increase the quality. We'll be able to have uh, fact checking. We'll be able to have um, style and just kind of like general the way that we present data um, can be you know, double checked and and tuned in. And I think we can produce a, a really high quality segment. So if you heard these and you are at all interested, please get in touch with us. Uh, shoot us an email. I'm thinking uh, just sh- send it to info at the orbitalmechanics.com in the subject line. Uh, please put um, data relay contributor um, so that I can uh, filter them out and make sure that I, I review everybody's submissions 
um, in your email. If you've done anything like this before, go ahead and let us know. You, that's not a requirement at all. Just in your email, tell us why you love space. If you want extra points, give us a topic or two that you've thought of. And just just tell us a bit about yourself, because we're really more interested in establishing good relationships with people. The quality comes after that. We have to find good people before we can expect good uh, production. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us how much time you think you'd be able to put into this every week. Keep in mind, it's probably less than your initial uh, instinct. If you're initially thinking, oh, I can do three hours a week, it's going to be less than that because we need a continuing basis, which is a slow burn, not a, not a hot flame that tapers off it and never catches. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's how you submit. I, I want to give you guys some sort of expectation, um, so that you're not just, um, getting into this blindly. We have a bunch of topics that are ready to go, which, uh, will be available to you. So you, you're not going to be required to come up with your own ideas. Um, if you, if you want to do that, we certainly will, will take those ideas and, and put them into the grab bag, but you're not required to come up with, uh, ideas, uh, but you are required to build these segments from the ground up. A lot of, uh, the stuff that we already have, the material that we have kind of like as a seed stock, a lot of it does have some research done. Um, but this, this takes a lot of research. So for each of these segments, it's going to take you around 16 hours, uh, maybe more, maybe less, but I mean, that's the kind of a, the time that we're talking about, you have to submit to a review process. Obviously, before we we're going to take time to sit down and record, we're going to need to go over your work. Um, right now, there are, I think, three checkpoints that you have to get through. And that review process genuinely is about us trying to help you and trying to help you form because we've been doing this for a while. We know how to we know how to build these segments. Um, uh, it's us helping you get your ideas into the right format and, and try to make your voice powerful. One of the requirements is there are deadlines, but they are your deadlines. If you want to come in and you can only, let's say, you know, it takes a solid 16 hours to, to do this. Maybe that takes you 16 weeks. That's okay. But uh, you can't start a project and just leave it running. So at every, at every stage, uh, you have to provide your own self a deadline and we will come back and check in with you when that deadline uh, is arrived at and say, Hey, okay, how are we doing? Uh, do you need some help? Um, you know, let's give you some input and let's kind of make sure that you're going in the right direction. So, so this really is not the wild west. Like you, you do have to conform to a certain structure. So a lot of talk for what should be a short announcement. Let's talk about, I've got three goals real quick. First off, I didn't announce any of these recording sessions on Patreon. Normally Patreon gets alerts for upcoming interviews and that kind of thing. Um, in the future, as we're doing this, um, we're going to be planning longer term because we did all this pretty much in a month. We put together these three episodes. We're going to have longer, you know, like long strides instead of quick sprints. Um, so we'll be able to tell Patreon, we'll let you guys know what's coming up. Um, give you guys some ideas. And if uh, Patreon supporters want more info, we can probably release some show notes or something to you early and, and let you uh, give us some feedback. That'd be pretty cool. Um, second, we want to increase our audio quality. I feel like when people contribute their first episode, they're pretty much going to be on their own. Uh, after that, we want to be able to work with people to get better audio. We'll be working on that. We're going to have bad audio every once in a while, but 
you know, it's, it's nice to listen to good audio. So we, I've got some ideas for that. And then third, um, these episodes that we did uh, were, I mean, I love them. They were very, very detail oriented. We want to start pushing towards more narrative driven um, story structures. And as we have more time to actually develop these, it'll be easier and easier to do that because we'll be able to do more reviews um, and reorganize things a bit more. Anderson, I just, you know, you guys haven't heard this yet, but Anderson, I love what you just gave us, but the amount of times that we were describing photos was a little bit intolerable. Um, <laughs> just like from a listening standpoint, like that's insane. We, so we're going to try to not rely on photos, you know, where possible, but we'd rather get you good, good entertaining information like this than not do it. Um, but yeah, that, that was, it was good to, to see what too much relying on photos is like. So again, please, if you're interested, shoot us an email, send it to info at the orbitalmechanics.com, uh, include the words data relay contributor in the subject so I can make sure to get every single one of them. And yeah, it's, it's going to be fun, guys. All right, this week for our third data relay we have anderson de supernova or also i guess anderson de nova that that's your real name but you go by anderson de supernova on twitter which is a great name and uh you've been i guess part of this podcast for a long time uh, but you haven't actually been on the show so welcome to the show well thank you and the topic we're talking about is launch tower umbilicals and this was something that was uh, suggested to us by logan kennedy on our slack so Thanks to him for bringing this up because this is something that we haven't talked about much. And as we're going to find out, there's a whole lot to learn. So this might be actually the most intensive like learning that we're going to do so far. And, and I thought last week was difficult, but I, I, I have a feeling that this week might be even worse because there's just so – boy, I mean you brought a lot of notes to this party, Anderson, so and a lot of pictures. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do our best. It's just I'm very bad with my memory, so I like writing things down. <laughs> Hopefully it won't be too go. long or boring. Before we get started, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm, I'm a listener of the Orbital uh, Mechanics podcast for quite a long time now. I'm, I'm an engineer. I'm a patrol engineer by background. And I work with uh, subsea engineering. So I, I do exploration, but uh, in the sea. So it's uh, quite different from what we're going to be speaking of. I've actually worked before with umbilicals, but that's umbilicals for oil and gas uh, facilities. So I, that's why I actually looked at this and thought, hey, maybe this could be interesting. Maybe there are some analogs. And boy, was I wrong. This is so different. <laughs> <laughs> And so complex too. Darn! I, I was so I was so excited that you're going to be like, and yeah, I found a lot of similarities, and here we're going to talk about it. No, nothing, no similarities. Nope, 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 nope. Very few. I guess one last thing I would say is that you are also a trumpet player, right? You play in a band. Yeah. So so I do play the trumpet, and I, and actually that was a show that I almost had to go and and miss uh, recording because of it. So I I do play the trumpet in a brass band, actually in two. And it's quite a lot of fun. It, maybe it's, it's worth mentioning also that I'm recording from Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Maybe that's also relevant. This, oh, yeah. And I speak a little bit of Russian. So that's in context, too. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, so enough about me. Uh, let's go into the actual launch umbilical tower. So I, I, this was actually very interesting to me because uh, when I thought about the umbilicals, I was really thinking of the lines and the functions that they deliver. And then as you start going into it, you see that the whole system is, is an infinite rabbit hole because there are just so many support pieces of equipment that go 
uh, right with it. Uh, I'll speak in detail about each one of them and in some detail because, well, there's only so much time, right? So what is the, the umbilical tower, right? It's the red tower that is easily identified uh, beside the Saturn V. And the obvious functionality that it brings is just bringing propellants to the vehicle and providing access to various stages, various levels of the rocket. And, but they, it does also exercise a lot of other functions. Now going to the, to the, the whole of the tower, the LUT, you see that, uh, there are essentially 10 umbilical carriers. Uh, three, uh, of these umbilical carriers are within the tail service mass. If you look at a, at a video of a launch, you, you will actually be able to see these things look like, uh, those, uh, oil and gas donkeys. They, they just, as the vehicle goes up, it just uh, uh, flips out. Uh, they, they're actually bringing uh, a lot of lines to the vehicle. So I'll, I'll speak in more detail about those as well. Now, the seven other uh, uh, umbilicals, they go through the service arms. If you count the arms, now this is actually very interesting because I was, as I was going through all of the reports and, and technical notes, I, I had a very, uh, very hard time identifying how many arms were there. Because I, I started thinking there were eight and then I realized there were nine and then, but then there were 10 umbilicals and the math wasn't, you know, it wasn't matching. So there are 10, the, the 10 umbilicals, seven of them go through the arms and two of the arms are only platforms and, and I'll go, uh, I'll go into each one of them. Now, one of the very interesting facts, uh, I have the, the Lego build for the Saturn V and, uh, I know Ben was assembling one of those as well, no? Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's really funny because I, I had never noticed how the black and white segments, uh, they're actually the what you could call the busy segments of the vehicle. So the white parts are essentially the, the, the tanks, right? And there's only one uh, very small uh, uh, exception to this rule, which is the, the inter tank in the, in the very first stage. Now, other than that, you, you can, you can treat the black parts as the, the, the more, the busier real estate. If you also notice in the pictures from the, the LUT, you see that that's where the arms interface in the, in the busy segments. Now, going up from the base, uh, there's, uh, there are three umbilical carriers that go through the tail service mass and those bring uh, a bunch of pneumatic couplings. So I won't mention those, but there are a lot of them. And so carrier number one brings eight electrical connectors and one six inch locks connector. Carrier number two brings eight electrical connectors and one six inch RP1 connector. And number three, uh, brings two four inch air conditioning couplings. Now, all of these are connected to the base of the SIC. So the, the stage one, I got to hold you real quick. It's, it's S one C. If you say S I C people are going to send us emails. Oh, sorry. I said S I C S one C. Okay. Thanks. So, uh, if you, if you go up to the S one C, the, the first stage. So the S one C after arm, it, it interfaces with the intertank structure, which is, it sits right on top of that USA, uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the USA saying. And it provides, uh, essentially locks fill and drain, uh, functions to the S1C. It separates the, the structure itself. It separates the locks and the RP1 tank. So the RP1 sits below and the lock sits above. And these obviously power the five F1 engines. One, one thing that I thought was interesting and it interfaces with the last data relay segment 
was that the, the, these umbilicals, they also provide the uh, gaseous healing for the pogo suppression system, which we already know is quite relevant for Apollo. There, there was actually one, one of the schematics that I included in the document shows the, the arrangement of the system, which is quite nice because it has all of the valving. So the, as you go up, the next uh, umbilical arm will be the S1C forward. And so that's the first of the three in that, in that intermediate segment there between the stage one and stage two. It interfaces with the S1C forward skirts. Now this umbilical plate, uh, serves control functions. So it has a lot of pneumatic and electrical functions coming through and also air conditioning. Now air conditioning, uh, consists of uh, gaseous nitrogen, which is, uh, uh, flown in, uh, to control the temperature of the the environment within the 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 rocket and it's supposed to keep the rocket between uh well at 80 degrees plus or minus 20 degrees fahrenheit so the it also controls humidity and it, it purges potentially hazardous gases that might be in the in the environment now this is done uh two hours prior to cryogenic loading the the forward skirt and the thrust structure which is the one below where the tail service mass connect uh they're they're all purged uh with a gaseous nitrogen and the forward skirts has an environmental control system so the ecs which is loaded in three consecutive steps so the first one and, and this is done in steps so in order to prevent imbalances generated by the ambient air so as the the ambient air changes and then there is internal heat uh in the vehicle and the locks loading chill effects you you want to make sure that this is done uh in steps to not uh cool too quickly or warm too quickly the whole structure so the first step is uh cool conditioned air is loaded into the electronics canisters and then second step a warm and and warm with air quotes here uh gaseous nitrogen is flown in and then warmer gaseous nitrogen is loaded into offset the temperature decreases they are caused by the the j2 engine on the on the second stage now uh in the thrust structure uh there's uh it, the the compartment of the acs is filled first with uh conditioned air and this is done through 22 uh orifice ducts the orifice duct outlets and then only 15 minutes before cryogenic loading is done uh the the flow of uh, gaseous nitrogen so if you go up, you see that the S2 aft uh, is essentially a platform. So it's just for human access to the vehicle. Now I couldn't find much detail on what exactly is it that you need humans to access that part of the, the vehicle if it's outside of the VAB. Uh, yeah, if anybody got any details on that, that would be interesting. Now, if you go up to the next level, there's the S2 enter. So, uh, just to clarify, those are the three platforms that stay right there in the, right in the middle segment of the vehicle, right? So the S2 enter is the highest one. Let me clarify for our listeners real quick. The S1C is the first stage and it has that corrugated section in the middle because the fuel and oxidizer tanks, um, don't share a common bulkhead. They That's have, right. uh, hemispherical end caps and those hemispherical end caps touch each other at their poles, right? So it's like putting two uh, medicine tablets end to end. Because you have that 
inner tank area where there's a lot of air and not a lot of tank, they corrugated the outer skin to add additional structure. So with, with the S2, you don't have an inner tank area because the fuel and oxidizer uh, tanks have a common bulkhead where um, I believe it's the oxygen uh, bulkhead is convex and the um, fuel side of the bulkhead is concave. So it's, you know, it's not like putting two tablets together. It's like crushing two tablets until they, you know, totally touch. And so that's why you don't have a corrugated section in the middle of the S2 stage, because you don't need additional reinforcing on the outside skin of the vehicle, because the tanks will uh, you know, are pressurized and and are rigid on their own. So the reason that I'm I, I was a little confused why it's called the S2 enter uh, umbilical is because there's no inner tank area. So what does that enter refer to? Uh, Anderson, let me make sure I got this correct. You said that it's called the enter just to distinguish it from the other arms that are right next to it. Right. So uh, the the nomenclature, what is an umbilical and what is an arm nomenclature? It's quite quite strange to me, but it, because you, they, they're often referred to as the S2 aft uh, umbilical S2 aft arm. So the, the S2 aft arm has no umbilicals function, no couplers, nothing connected to the vehicle. And that's the one that sits right at the base of the second stage. And the following is the one that, that looks like a clamp and connects to the base of the second stage and at that one actually delivers functions and that one is called enter just because it's on top of the s2 aft does that make sense yeah and, and what's funny is the s2 aft arm is pretty much at the inner stage between the s1c and the s2 stages right. and then the <laughs> the inner arm is above the inner stage so it's right. yeah it's weird now imagine me reading through these documentation and getting very confused yeah. and counting <laughs> arms one two three no wait that's not it yeah, so the, the S2 Enter, which is the one that we just spoke of, uh, brings a 8-inch uh, liquid hydrogen couplers, and well, actually just the one, and one 8-inch LOX coupler. And it also contains a vent line and pneumatic electrical functions, which essentially comes through, I think, all of them. Also, air conditioning and is instrument cooling, so similarly to uh, the, the one below, the, the one that I just mentioned. Now going up on top of the second stage on the, the upper portion, there's the S2 forward. Now S2 forward has two seven inch gaseous healing vent couplings. And this is, a, this is quite interesting because think about it. If uh, you need to vent gaseous, uh, sorry, I said gaseous healing, I meant gaseous hydrogen. So if you, if you want to vent gaseous, gaseous hydrogen, you really don't want to just vent it to the, <laughs> to the environment. So you have those uh, seven inch couplers up there and it makes sense that they're above, right? With the convection and all that. Now you also have electrical pneumatic interfaces. So all of that for controls. Going one above, you have the S4B aft. And this one has a four inch uh, liquid hydrogen coupling and a four inch LOX coupling. So you see the stages get smaller. The connectors also get smaller. And you also have air conditioning coming through. Now here, the, the, the propellant couplings, they're actually integrated into one single umbilical carrier plate. 
so you maybe you're able to see uh from the pictures but they're only the the electrical lines are uh, coming through separated so they can actually be popped out and put together if you want to for checkout functions right so before during uh pre-launch they they can actually take take out the electrical connectors to make sure that they come they're coming off and so it's separated from the plates but the umbilical plate is integrated now the the s4b forward umbilical uh it interfaces with the the saturn instrument unit and this is quite important that's the the very first black ring that you see on the on the top segments of the vehicle and this is what you could call the computer and the smart segments of the vehicle at least the smartest uh cool cool uh fact about it it's in exhibition in the national air and space museum in dc and i've seen it the thing is huge super amazing yeah a lot of wires right a lot of wires a lot of <laughs> different it's just so hard to, to understand what's going on it's so busy now uh, there are two umb umbilical carrier plates that connect with it, and uh, and and this is this is where it gets tricky because when I saw that there were ten umbilicals, now this one arm brings two umbilical carrier plates, so they're they're connected by uh, a bracket uh, type structure, a side bracket, so they they disconnect as a unit, but they're called uh, as if they were two umbilical carrier plates. Does that make sense? So there, there's mm -hmm. one below and one on top. The one below services the S4B segment, and the one on top services the IU. So it's like the IU has its own umbilical plate. And what does what does IU stand for? Instrument units. So it's a uh, fancy for computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. That yeah, that whole ring right is called the IU. Okay. Yeah, the whole black ring. So uh, the S4B forward, which is the one, the, the segment below. The S4B side, the, the lower side, has got a, it's got a big fill port at the bottom. And then above it are a bunch of, I'm assuming, pneumatic lines. Uh, or no, they're probably, they're probably electrical connectors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's, it's a good square. It's like three, two, three stacked on top of each other. Um, and then the upper section is another... It looks like a fill line, but it's probably air conditioning, right? Yeah, the one the one on top for the IU is air conditioning for sure. So it's uh to to keep the, everything cool and and constant. And the one below is uh, gaseous uh, hydrogen vent. So it's a six inch gaseous hydrogen vent. Okay, so yeah, so gaseous hydrogen vent on the bottom, then a bunch of electrical connectors on top, and then the IU portion has got that. It's a six inch air conditioning coupler. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like six <laughs> inches of air conditioning and then just a massive electrical hookups all around. I mean, pretty much surrounding right. it. Right. The IU has 16 electrical connectors. So that, that gives you yeah. a sense of how complex this thing is. Now, besides the, the ECS that I mentioned before, the environmental control system, there's also the TCS, which is thermal conditioning system. Very different, right? So in the IU uh, and in the S4B stage, the umbilicals provide a, a cooling fluid that is 60% methanol and 40% demineralized water. And this is a weight percentage. So uh, this is uh, the, the TCS is also uh, called is also called cold plates, and so there are up up to 16 of these throughout the IU, and these are mm. honeycomb-like structures with tapped bolt holes that they're able to dissipate. 420 watts each so there uh, there are two heat exchangers and 
one for pre-flight that circulates methanol and water. And this is operated all via ground support equipment. The, the flight heat exchanger that kicks in is uh, 180 seconds after liftoff. And that uses demineralized water uh, with a sublimating porous plate. Now, these are quite cool because uh, as, as they're auto-regulated. So as the water freezes, uh, you, you start getting heat uh, warmer in, within the, the, the environment of the IU. So that makes the, wa the water become liquid again, and then you're able to exchange heat. So it's a very auto-regulated, interesting, porous media. So by changing the methanol to water ratio, you can effectively choose what temperature you want your, your control unit to be sitting at. That too, and, but I, I think they, they only work with a 60-40 ratio. Well, probably because that's what got them the temperature that they wanted, right? Right, right, right. But you also have to think about that you, you're not entirely sure what the temperature outside is going to be. So there might be wind, you have all of these sure. environmental conditions. So it's, I think it's more a sense of the flow rate and controlling the temperature yeah. upstream of the, of the vehicle. Okay, cool. That, that's such a cool little, a cool little feedback system. Very cool. Right. So the, the, the pre-flight heat exchanger uh, also includes accumulators uh, pressurized with gaseous nitrogen. And this is so it deals with these fluctuations in pressure and temperature either by expansion or, or just to damp excess or lack of coolants that may come up at some point. So if there's some slugging in the system for any operational reason, you can actually uh, compensate for that with these accumulators. There's a hazardous gas detection system in place at the IU. It also goes through this umbilical plate. It consists of four open-ended tubes shaped as a ring. And so you have, uh, if you think of a ring and uh, think of open-ended tubes, they end at different segments throughout the circumference. So you're mm -hmm. able to sample uh, the air all around the IU. That's, uh, that ring is connects as a single quick disconnect coupler. So the, that thing, that whole tube is essentially one of those couplers that you see in the, in the schematic. This is one thing that I that I wasn't too sure about. Maybe someone out there knows the answer to, if how the sampling of the gas is done. Because I'm sure it's not done at the vehicle, right? You, you're not going to carry a mass spectrometer with you. And what so what's the actual physical means of uh, identifying either helium? Does it look only at, uh, sorry hydrogen? Does it look only for hydrogen and oxygen, or does it look for anything else that's combustible? Does it sample the whole of the atmosphere? So this is probably one of the consoles that sits at the at the tower or either low in, at the lower level in the in the launcher base. Couldn't find much detail on that, but it sounds very interesting. Now the there are two single wire grounding cables that are connected to the IU, and that's below the umbilical plates. And those are the last connectors to disconnect, for obvious reasons. You really want to make sure you're grounded. The IU measuring systems they consist of two subsystems. So the telemetry and the antenna system. The telemetry provides uh, a vehicle checkout functions. And during vehicle flight, uh, it also offers immediate verification of the IU and provides measurements. And then post-flight, it does serve for post-flight scientific analysis of the mission. So this is like your black box, your, your flight uh, black box. Mm. And then the, the two telemetry links uh, they're uh, connected to the ground support equipment. They're PCM-FM and FM-FM, and they're multiplexed 
system, so they're able to handle uh, 200 measurements uh, in parallel. So that's quite interesting. If you go up uh, one level, you see the very last arm that connects, and that's not actually last because those are two arms. Interesting point. So there's the service module arm, and that's for air conditioning, vent line, coolant, and electrical pneumatic interfaces. And there's the command module access arm, and that's essentially a platform only. So it provides crew access to the spacecraft. Those look like one, but they're uh, separate structures. Are they are they side by side? They're they're one on top of one yeah, the I, other. I guess they're they're one on top of the other, but they're also side by side in a sense because they're not in the same plane. Does that make sense? Oh yeah yeah. So the at the very top of the tower, uh, you see that there's a big big crane. So that's a 25-ton crank, and it's at display at Kennedy Space Center, I think. I don't know if it is still, but it, 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 I found a topic on Reddit uh, talking about it. It seemed interesting. It's a pretty large crank. Now, uh, talking about the, the arms in terms of form and function, they're essentially, they consist of a hinged truss structure that is cantilevered from the umbilical tower, uh, the arms. And so there's a retraction system which swings the arm out of the vehicle path. And there's the withdrawal system, the withdrawal mechanism. And that it is what retracts the umbilical plates and service lines to the end of the arm at vehicle ascent. Now, it, it's quite interesting because uh, I had never noticed this before, but there are two big motions that the arms uh, exercise while uh, the, the launch happens. So the first one is when it pulls the plates out of the vehicle. And the second one is when it, it actually pivots the arm away from the vehicle. So those two two motions, they're two separate systems. Now, the umbilical carriers, they're divided into two categories. There are in-flight disconnects, and those are the ones that you see in the videos of the launch, and there are pre-flight disconnects. Now, if you notice in the videos and in the pictures, you see that there are, there are not the same amount of arms, and that's essentially because of that. A lot of uh, the arms, they retract quite a long uh, time or seconds before, and some of them even longer before the, the vehicle uh, leaves. So now going into more detail on the withdrawal mechanism. So the, the umbilical plates and service lines, they're, they're pulled back from the vehicle to the ends of the service arm. And so that mechanism is capable of, uh, air quotes, tracking the vehicle. I don't know exactly what they mean about that. I think it's because since there's some slack to the cables and the and the, the lines, you're able to uh, account for some vehicle motion. So you're you're still able to keep connected. When they're saying tracking the vehicle, do they mean the f during the first part of launch where there's vertical movement? Because it it does look like they hang on for a second before detaching and and getting the heck out of the way. Yeah. So uh, by design, they're supposed to leave right before the rocket moves oh right before the rocket moves right okay. before yeah the so the there are many mechanisms there are many redundancies and so if it fails twice and then the third one is okay if the vehicle is moving get the hell out of there so that's uh that that's the third third mechanism that pulls it up so i I think what they mean by tracking is really there's some slack. I'm totally just guessing. Yeah, like wind sway, that kind of thing. Right, right, right. Mm, and okay. so any accommodate some mm. movement. Okay. Now the the umbilical plate it's protected against uh, destructive impact loadings during the withdrawal. You don't want to damage the tower or any of the equipment in there. 
So there's a line handling system that provides this, this line slack accommodation uh, that develops during the withdrawal mechanism. And that the line handling system makes sure that there's a positive drain at all times, in, especially in mm. the propellant lines. So I think this is mainly if you, if you disconnect for some reason, you need to connect once again. You want to make sure there's no slugging. This is what I'm assuming. So you don't want to, you know, have the, the, the liquids come down and then back up and, and potentially have uh, two phases there. And that, that's my understanding. Now, the secondary umbilical plate unlock and ejection mechanism is also incorporated. Like I said, the, uh, the first one and second one, they're very mechanical. And then, uh, it, sorry, they're pneumatic and mechanical. And the third one, the tertiary, is uh, the one that releases an event of complete power failure. And when, mm -hmm. when it means power, it's not only electrical, but pneumatic as well. So you might lose pressure, right? The, the rectangular plate is, uh, uh, as you were describing, right? It's a casting with a lot of fittings in it. So they go all the way from one quarter uh, fitting up to 10 inch ID. I don't know which one is the 10 inch, but I saw a record of it having up to 10 inch. And this is, this mates with the vehicle and is held in place pneumatically and actuated by a ball lock pin. Now it's quite a simple mechanism, but it's, it's very reliable. And the pneumatic supply uh, to the pin also operates a group of uh, small pistons within the umbilical plates which they, they, they are essentially the primary ejection force that separates the connector and kick back the plates free of the vehicle. So that's the, the very first one. And after the vehicle has risen a few inches, the umbilical plate is unlocked and injected and would drop back to the end of the service arm. So if you look at the engineering camera footage, for instance, you see that the plate is really pulled away from the vehicle and the, there's a lot of slack that, that you, you can notice when, the, when it's pulled. Now, the primary mechanism, like I said, it, it's uh, bolted within the lightweight frame and it's, it's uh, supported on a shock mounted pin and that pivots uh, on the vertical axis and the, the fitting uh, extending from this pin is connected to a piston rod with a very large uh, long cylinder. And so this is uh, just to give you a sense of size is a five inch bore with a 63 inch stroke. And, and within this bore, there's a four inch tubular rod. So this mechanism is the primary one to, to get the, get the umbilical plates away from the vehicle. Okay. Five inch bore refers to the internal diameter of the of cylinder. The, that's of been the bored cylinder. Out. That's right. Yeah. And then 36 inch stroke refers to 36 inches worth of movement back and forth inside that bore. That's right. And then, and then a four inch tubular rod means that there's like an inch worth of, of play of inside the, yeah. That's wow. Right. Okay. I, I wonder right. why, why there's so much talk. Oh, probably because it needs to be able to float around a bit. I don't know. It also depends on what's the, what's the wall thickness of the, of the container, right? It's, I mean, it's a five inch bore nominally, but you got to think of the actual wall thickness of the, of the sleeve. So maybe there's not a lot of room there being a four inch uh, tube loop. 
Does that make sense? Not really. Doesn't five inch bore like when you say bore, doesn't that mean that they bored out? Oh, I'm a sorry. Five yeah, inch... you're completely right. Yeah, it's it's five inch ID. It's okay. Five inch ID okay. and four inch tubular. That's right. Wow, yeah. that's that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of space. It's a it's a pneumatic actuator, so it, it's filled with uh, pressurized uh, uh, fluid. So I'm guessing yeah. It, yeah. they might just need that much surface area to that's apply right. force to. So the below this large cylinder, there's a second universal joint, uh, with in in it's attached with uh, its own rods and and a barrel, and and that's with uh, that's connected to the large cylinder. And this small cylinder is a standard high pressure hydraulic actuator with a three inch bore and one and a half inch uh, rod with a twenty inch stroke. So the, there's a smaller version. Of this big one connected to uh, to the to, to it, and and this is all the primary. Now, if you go to the secondary mechanism, uh, there's a a secondary device that is connected to the plate that it's supposed to. It, it's located between the plate and the large cylinder, and it's a, s a small single acting pneumatic cylinder that drives a spring loaded linkage, and this rotates two levers. Uh, and the cami uh, that that moves the umbilical away. So it, the 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 reason for the cami is because you want to make sure that this moves very smoothly and in a controlled speed. So even if it's there's wind or anything, any environmental loading, you want to make sure you know the velocity that the arm is moving. So it's physically attached, and the separation force is about fifteen hundred pounds. So it's wow. quite a big swing, yeah. And then the tertiary is a, a is a method that disconnects the umbilical plates solely by the vertical liftoff motion. And that one you really don't want to have to go that way. But I mean, if nothing <laughs> works, you have to, right? So when the vehicle the vehicle has risen uh, past a predetermined level, and I've seen a couple of numbers, uh, one of them was like a quarter of an inch, or something very ridiculously wow. small. Yeah, it's really precise. So uh, the the angular change between the umbilical plates and the large cylinder axis causes an engagement of a small cam device, and that operates uh, that spring-loaded linkage. So it, it, it's essentially the same mechanism, but yeah. the driving force is, is something else. Like, that sounds like incredibly hard to engineer. Right. <laughs> Like there, to, to meet a, all these requirements. If you if you look at the at how the piece is developed, it, it reminds me a lot of uh, this one thing that we have in our guests, which are BOPs. They're uh, blowouts preventers. They, they they're the safety mm. uh, safety device in the in your oil and gas well. And these things are just so complex. In in inside them, they're just mechanical devices pushing and pulling. And pressurizing, it's it's a lot like that. It's very complex. I love how I'm giving a reference in oil and gas, and probably no one who's listening has any idea mm -hmm. of how that looks like. So maybe not so useful. But I mean, it, it's it's good to note that like like this isn't its own thing. Like this is you know the type of mechanism that we use all the time. Obviously, this is you know space grade kind of stuff. But you know, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's really mechanical engineering. On steroids, it's just very detailed yeah. and very uh, redundant. Before we move on, um, I I just want to talk about the the primary um, disconnect 
uh, mechanism. So it's it's this pin that moves back and forth inside of a bore, right? Right. And so we talked about what can actually withdraw that pin, but we didn't talk about how withdrawing that pin actually affects, you know, a, an unlatch mechanism. So I, I think most people are familiar with the latching mechanism in a car door, right? Where you have a striker plate uh, that's got like a loop and then the latch has got like a hook. And when you put them together, the hook, the, the, latch plate actually drives a cam inside the hook that pushes the hook down and they're they're held together mechanically by like a hook and loop that are made out of steel but in this case that's not what we're talking about it, it almost looks like the ball detent in like a socket wrench right where you've got that little steel ball bearing that's held in with or it's pushed outward by a spring but then there's like um, a pin so you can like press a button on the back of the wrench and it sucks those balls back into the into the square uh segment yeah, that actually goes yeah. yeah and and so it's it looks kind of like that right where you've got um i i don't know if it's actually um balls but like this pin is holding a mechanism in place when you pull that pin out uh, detents are allowed to actually fall back into the chamber and all of a sudden it's free to move away um, from the receptacle. If you think about it, it's like uh, if you think of a cylinder, it's not exactly a cylinder, but if you think of a cylinder with a round end uh, and then think of that cylinder coming back, uh, going to a, a one uh, diameter larger. So you, you have a small cylinder connect to a large one. So that small one is the one that is within the vehicle. And as the, is the, the, this whole pin structure is moved backwards, the balls that are touching the large cylinder, they, they now slide down, well, slide inwards and touch the mm -hmm. smaller cylinder. So it accommodates for, uh, the, these balls that were actually the, the, the part of the pin that is, uh, holding onto the vehicle. So it's not the pin itself that holds it, but the but the little balls around it. Yeah. Does that make sense? So it, it literally is a ball detent is what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. the more I look at it, the more I'm convinced this is just like a, like a socket wrench. A lot like it. I think so, yeah. So the retraction mechanism follows a few uh, points that I think are worth highlighting in terms of design philosophy. So the arm needs to be removed of the collision path with, uh, with uh, the vehicle. So you really want to mm. get it away, right? And then there's the the complete arm retraction. It occurs before the engine exhaust can impinge on the arm. So the timing is critical here. And you've got to have fail-safe features. So uh, like the one, the withdrawal mechanism, it's full of redundancies. There's a composite system that controls the arm acceleration, deceleration. So you really got to think this through. So you take it away from the vehicle but you don't break it. And, and then you, you have two energy sources stored at each arm level. So you have redundancy and at forearm retraction and the tower mounted shock absorber. That's what decelerates the and uncontrolled retraction. So if it fails partially and it still retracts, but too quickly, you have shock absorbers at the, at the very end to keep it from, uh, well, destroying itself or damaging the, the tower yeah like damaging the tower is obvious but like also these things are really expensive right and you're pulling mm -hmm. them away from a rocket yeah right there's already enough of it that is expendable you don't want to expend your tower as well yeah you don't want to replace your tower every single time you launch a rocket right. okay that would be very bad 
So the the primary system torque is uh, two million and five hundred thousand inch pounds. Uh, so I have no sense of how much that is, but it seems like a lot. Well, it, yeah, and that's that's torque at the base of the arm. So it makes sense that you need a lot of torque to be able to rotate this arm. But holy cow! Right. I mean, it's a heavy structure. I I saw this one guy building one Lego set of uh, of a LUT. And when you see that, because because you know how how the Saturn V is huge, but when you look at the tower beside the Saturn V, that's when you start to realize how, dude, that's an immense structure. It and moving that quickly, it's not a simple task. I looked it up because this is going to be more relatable to a lot of people. This is two hundred and eighty-two thousand joules of rotational wow. force. Okay, go ahead. So the primary pressure supply for this is uh, uh, three 10-gallon nitrogen bottles, and they're pre-charged to 2,000 PSI. And the secondary pressure supply is a combination of three 10-gallon nitrogen bottles and uh, a piston-type 10-gallon accumulator. So the both the primary and secondary supplies, they're mounted on the tower floor adjacent to the arm. And... and you see, if you go through documentation, you see that there are lots of support equipment that I'm not even touching here. They are all the way through the, the tower itself. Now, going, just, just making a very summarized uh, uh, general overview of how these, uh, each arm is, but I'm just going to give you a general description. So they're, they're pneumatically driven and with these uh, compound parallel linkage device. So, they most of them they're they're in flight disconnects so you see that i think there are five of them uh that disconnects in flight and then there are the other ones they're they all disconnect before so the s1c aft uh retracts at t minus 30 and that may vary a little bit and it takes 13 seconds uh to to get away from the vehicle and you see from the other ones that that's too long. So that's probably why it's done uh, beforehand. Now, it, they're able to reconnect it uh, in within five minutes. So it, it does take a while. I'm assuming it takes someone to go in there and connect things uh, by hand because five minutes is a lot. The S1C forward is uh, retracted at T minus 16.2 seconds. And that one takes two seconds. The S2F is retracted when required. So if I'm not mistaken, S2F is just the platform. So that's probably why you mm. don't need it uh, during launch. And the S2 enter is uh, the same as the S4B uh, forward, which I'll speak about. And that, that's because it's S4B is essentially used as a, as a base case design. So it, in addition to the S4B, has an actuated lanyard system, uh, which I understand is a, is a backup. Now, if, uh, if you look at the, the footage of the engineering cameras and the photos, you see this lanyard system on top of the umbilical. It's quite, quite, uh, remarkable, quite easy to pick up. And in case the, the, the primary, uh, mechanism fails, that's, that's what that's there for. And it takes 6.4 seconds to retract, so it's quite quick. The S2 forward uh, is the same as S4B. It takes 7.4 seconds. And S4B aft uh, has a line handling device on top of it. So uh, in order to deal with that slack and make sure the drain is still positive, like I mentioned before, 
takes 7.7 seconds. And as for before and finally, which is uses reference, uh, is it this pneumatic disconnects in conjunction with a pneumatic hydraulic redundant dual cylinder system. Now, this secondary mechanical system uh, is also equipped with a line handling device, and that's uh, to protect it during the withdrawal. And it takes 8.4 seconds, uh, so a little bit longer than the other ones. Now, the going up, the service module takes nine seconds to get out of the way. The command uh, module access arm uh, can be retracted and extended from uh, the launch control center. So that's retracted to a 12 degree part position during T minus 43 uh, or T minus five. So there's that window there. Uh, between that, you, you're able to retract it. And then uh, the extend time of the arm is 12 seconds. So this is quite quick uh, and it can be done remotely. There are spring loaded doors on the vehicle that close right after the arm retraction is done. So these cover the connector ports. And I've tried to see this at the videos, but I really can't, I think they're quite small and you're not able to pick out. Now the, the speed of the arm is very controlled by a metering out method uh, that is combined with a, a pressure compensated flow principle. Uh, there's a special cam operated pressure compensated flow control valve that is located in the hydraulic return line. And since the flow rate is limited by the cam shape and the action of the valve compensator, the arm retraction is completely independent of the wind loading condition. So like I said, you it's very predictable. And hmm. you, you, you can always make sure that that is constant. This is why the, the timing of retraction of the arms is so goddamn precise. I mean, th this, this is what this whole thing is, right? It's a bunch of steel structure that it, it looks very simple. And then you look at it and it's all mechanical. So how, yeah. how does this dumb piece of iron make so that <laughs> all of these complex things happen at the right yeah. time? Have I exploded your brains already? Yeah, we're, we're mm -hmm. like third bit. stage exploded. <laughs> so it's going to get simpler from now on, hopefully. Because these are the two more complex, most complex uh, systems. So now speaking about the extension platform, it's essentially a working uh, a working area to interface uh, with uh, the access way and the stage of the vehicle that the, the the platform is. So the interesting thing that I can mention, because I have a lot of numbers here about the clearance and whatnot, but I think. The, the most interesting thing is that if you, if you look at the, how the, the structure is laid out, you see that the flooring is, uh, you can see through. And I don't know how to properly put this into words, but it's, uh, is this essentially, uh, very simple metal, uh, connected metal with, uh, with, uh, empty space in between. And that's because if, as the, the exhaust impinges through the structure, you want to make sure that you have room for the for the fuel and whatever uh, fuel is yeah. bad wording, but for all of the plume to come through without moving the structure or, or damaging it. So you don't want a, a solid piece of metal that is just going to be pushed away or damaged. Now, uh, and this is true for the whole of the the access way and the and the tower as well. Now, the, the platform can be connected to the vehicle in winds up to 35 miles per hour, which is pretty incredible, and can remain connected in higher wind velocities with the vehicle swinging up to 0.84 centimeters per second, which you think, if you think about it, 
that's a very large vehicle. So 0.84, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's quite, it's quite a lot. It's it's shaking. And then there were a lot of things that I didn't speak about that I thought were would be interesting too, but I, I couldn't find much detail on like the propellant lines, the environmental ducts, like how these things are uh, really, I mean, the environmental duct is probably simple, uh, like an HVAC system, but the propellant lines, I'm guessing they're very insulated and of some really interesting materials. So I couldn't find much on that. And then there's the whole electrical installation, which I didn't go into because I'm not an electrical engineer and I don't want to embarrass myself here. <laughs> so <laughs> the auxiliary arm supports and latch assembly uh, spoke a little bit about that, but not too much because you not only retract, but you latch it to the, to the tower. And then there's the fluid service lines, the water quench system to contain the, the plume. So there's a lot more like the storage conditions and uh, pre-launch, post-launch uh, use of the tower, the it, the whole of the transportation with the crawler. So, I mean, I was thinking initially to speak about how these are similar, how the, the LUT is similar to other vehicles and other umbilicals. But now, seriously, I, I, I don't know how yeah. I even thought about that. <laughs> yeah, man, that like all of that is like all super interesting, but like that's you were you basically were on your way to just talking about all of apollo is what you're right. going to do <laughs> okay so with that i think i i conclude the whole the whole lut and i uh, i think i've spoken enough hopefully you have enough material <laughs> yes i think wow. you got uh just you know slap it and i think you got your first book you can publish now yeah, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, if I may, thank you guys for having me. This was super fun. And I mean, I've been listening for a long time and and it, it we always feel like we're a part of the conversation just from listening. So this is extra, extra fun. All right, moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. We just got two launches in. That is all. First up is an Atlas V in the 551 configuration flying AEHF4. And there's no way that's actually an acronym. Uh, so this is the, the fourth satellite in the Advanced Extremely High Frequency System, uh, which is uh, U.S. Air Force communication satellites. This is uh, flying from Cape Canaveral on October the 17th at 0451 hours UTC. Uh, the window, it's actually a pretty long window. Uh, so it extends from 0415 hours to 0615 hours uh, UTC. And the second launch this week is an Ariane 5 ECA carrying the Bepi Colombo uh, mission. And so this is a joint uh, ESA and JAXA uh, mission that will be taking two orbiters along with the propulsion system that will physically take them you know that last leg to mercury and it will be flying out of ariane launch area 3 in Kourou, uh on october 20th at 145 utc uh with i guess an instantaneous launch window all right so those are your upcoming spaceflight events which means it's time to deal with the show and we would like to thank ronald jenkins and tim dodd for our music we record live on sundays at 9 a.m pacific 12 p.m eastern thank you very much to our five dollar and up patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly if you want to support the show too please leave us a review wherever you listen 
this week i have to say thank you to respace from sweden uh, for leaving us a review on apple podcasts you can also visit the orbitalmechanics.com support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit we're orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com so that is it and we will see you next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody bye